The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. I was absolutely horrified. Um, it was a just an awful attack in South Edmonton and a 41-year-old man, as you heard Randy mention, facing several charges after two Somali women were attacked outside a South Edmonton shopping centre in what police say was a hate-motivated incident. It happened in broad daylight Tuesday afternoon in the parking lot at Southgate Centre. Uh, Sergeant Gary Willits is in charge of the Hate Crimes and Violent Extremism Unit at the Edmonton Police Service. He says the two women both from the Somali community, uh, were sitting in a vehicle when a man approached them and started screaming offensive racial comments at them. He then started punching the passenger window until it broke. The occupants were so scared at that time that one passenger jumped out to run away. However, the, uh, the subject male uh, chased after that female, uh, pushed her to the ground, and then began uh, assaulting the female. The second female who was in the vehicle got out to render aid, and at that point, that male then turned and pushed that female to the ground. Just disgusting actions. Uh, nearby witnesses then intervened, holding the suspect until police arrived. Uh, Sergeant Willett says the first victim was briefly knocked unconscious during the attack, and he says they're doing their best to support the victims. I was able to speak to them. And as you can expect, extremely traumatized, uh, exhausted, physically, mentally, um, fearful, not wanting to leave their home. Um, we got, we're going to be working closely with this family and with the community. Edmonton police say the suspect is known to them but has no prior history of racism or hatred at all that they know of. 41-year-old Richard Bradley Stevens has been charged with two counts of assault, one count of mischief, and other charges are still possible. Irfan Chowdhury is the director of the McEwen University Office of Human Rights, Diversity and Equity, Criminology lecturer as well on his resume and a hate crimes researcher. Welcome back to the show, Irfan. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh my goodness, um, I, I was just so absolutely disgusted and so disappointed, uh, horrified when I, when I read this story um, and, and I've heard comments from some of the family members. Uh, what went through your mind when, when you heard about it, when you, when you saw it? Yeah, you know, I think I share the same sentiment as you, disgusting. You know, I think yeah. how, how, how brazen it was, uh, how overt it was. And I think that's why, you know, with uh, the hate crimes unit being involved quite, quite quickly, making that, you know, a motive and connection. Uh, but it's just, you know, another unfortunate example of the reality of racial discrimination in our, in our, in our province, in our city, in our, in our country. Uh, that really, you know, I think it's, it's one of those pieces that, you know, it's an, uh, again, thoughts go out to the victims as well in the community because it does have impacts on the community as well. But it just kind of re- reaffirms and reminds the lot uh, of work that continues to be done and needing to be done to address hatred uh, and racial hatred specifically. You know, uh, today is UN Human Rights Day. And so, you know, what a reminder of, of the work that continues to be done around, uh, you know, ensuring everyone feels safe and included in the communities that we live and serve in.
You know, it was just, uh, I think, a week ago, there was a, uh, there was a report out that was showing that, um, you know, hate crimes in, in the country are up um, and that uh, almost hate, almost half of the hate crimes from last year targeted people for their race or, race or ethnicity, uh, followed closely by their religious background. We still have such a, a long way to go. We saw the mayor tweet yesterday afternoon, uh, yesterday saying, you know, to the victims, know that Edmontonians are with you and that uh, Edmonton City Council is committed to fighting against systemic prejudice, uh, systemic prejudice and discrimination. When, when we're looking at what still needs to be done, my gosh, where, where do we start? You know, so w- one of the things that I've, I've observed with uh, with this particular case, and I think it's important to, to acknowledge the, the great work of the EPS in this regard, is how quickly they were able to, you know, address it, uh, and especially to, mm-hmm. to the bystanders that came in to, to intervene and, and, and hold this, uh, this coward down, in my opinion. Um, at the end of the day, though, you know, being able to publicly share what happened, what the police did, and reaffirm a commitment to, you know, standing up for hatred, especially, you know, hatred that affects people in physical ways. Um, I think that's that's a promising start, right? It's, it's Again, I look at this from how oftentimes when we don't address, you know, hateful narratives in, in public ways to acknowledge uh, and try to highlight that this type of behavior will not be tolerated, then it almost gives us that, that assumption of tacit approval. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you have, you know, the mayor saying what he does, uh, when I, th- I believe the chief of police had, had shared yes. something on uh, on his own Twitter account, you know, I think there, there's positive steps that can kind of, you know, allow folks to be reaffirmed that as a community, from a leadership perspective, these things will not be tolerated. But at the same time, you know, there's very limited things that, from a policing perspective that can be done um, around addressing hate, bias, and discrimination. This case in particular, I think, is a little bit unique in the sense of how you know, again, quickly they were able to make that motive and connection and provide, you know, the criminal code designated kind of section 718 uh, sentencing principle that connects it, you know, considering hate and bias as a motivation for a crime. But oftentimes it's not as as plain cut as that. And that's where it gets really challenging around. We know it's been motivated by hate or bias towards identifiable group, but it might not fit within the threshold of a criminal charge or within some of the criminal code categories. So what else can be done? And I think that's the big question that not only just, you know, municipal police services are trying to address, but I know even at a federal level, there's some conversation about what to do there. Irfan, I think that this it gives people in um, in in racialized com- in communities, um, you know, maybe a little bit of hope that um, th- things are t- are being taken seriously. Again, this report that I that I mentioned earlier was saying that just what three quarters of all hate crimes reported by police last year, uh, they were in eight cities. But we know that a lot of hate crimes they they don't get reported, and I think that there's a you know all sorts of reasons for that that you can probably expand on. But the fact that um, that that the EPS were were on this immediately, that the charges have been laid, has to has to give folks a little bit of hope that um, or you know that that things are being taken seriously. That if something does happen, that um, they might feel a little bit more comfortable going to Edmonton Police and saying this happened to me. 
Yeah, 100%, right? And I think that's probably one of the main reasons uh, why police kind of was uh, as quick to share and, you know, frame what had happened to the broader community uh, because oftentimes hate crimes and hate incidents tend to be underreported. Um, you know, one of the main reasons being is people feel the police won't do anything. And for every example where you see something, you know, like what the EPS have done, there's also another handful of examples where nothing has been done. And oftentimes it might be because if it's not criminal in nature, police are, you know, limited in their ability to be involved. But that's why I think it's appropriate for when there is the opportunity to share and reaffirm a commitment to protecting, you know, racialized and, and vulnerable and marginalized communities, that uh, information piece, I think, does help, you know, give a layer of support and hopefully understanding that, you know, communities feel the trust within the police to take these things seriously. But we also have to be mindful in the current context that we are uh, living in, in, a, in you know, uh, the, the discussions around, you know, police uh, legitimacy and use mm -hmm. of force and other aspects there. There's still a lot of trust building to be, to be happening. And I think this is one way that police can do this in terms of in, informing communities of, you know, what they've done to protect, you know, racialized communities in, in some degree. Uh, but again, I think there's still a lot more work that can be done as well. You know, oftentimes um, when there is some sort of attack, um, you know, you, you, we question you, what would what would you do? What would I do if if I if I witness something like this? I, you know, I, I had a conversation just a couple of days ago when it comes to uh, domestic violence um, about, you know, speaking up being being willing to speak up and maybe take a stand. And, and for for um, for people who witness this to get involved that says a lot too, doesn't it? I mean, to me, you'd think, oh, well, that's an obvious, that's a no-brainer. You would step in, you would get in there. I think a lot of us would like to think that that's exactly what we would do until you're in that moment. And to see people step in yesterday or on Tuesday afternoon, um, that gives me a, a little bit of hope as well. Mm. Yeah, I think it's incredible, right? And again, everyone has to feel comfortable to be able to intervene in ways that they that they feel will be be supportive for the people, but also, you know, personal safety as well. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things, right? When that bystander effect, you know, is challenged and people do intervene, whether it's you know physically, uh, whether it's you know in, in this case, kind of holding the person down, uh, whether it's calling police, whether it's you know everyone has a uh, camera now to document it. So when police do arrive, there's there's information there. There's many ways that intervention can look. The biggest thing, though, is to not do it. Like, don't not do anything, right? Do something. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, bring it up to the attention of someone. Share it with police. You know, mall security in this context. Um, just so it can be addressed and the people that are experiencing it uh, know that, you know, they have the support. And I think being able to reach out to the community and the individual impacted also provides that support uh, in the context of ensuring that hatred won't be, won't be tolerated in any form. What what does this do to communities? What does this when when they when they read about this when they hear about this? You know, we we've heard about these 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 women saying, so you know, that they're they're scared, they're they're afraid to go outside. What does it do? Was it what does it do to um to to other folks? Yeah, you know, uh, hate, hate crimes and hate incidents, you know, they often get framed as, as message crimes, right, or, or message mm -hmm. incidents. And, you know, when you're attacking someone because of, you know, what they wear on their head, 
uh, or you know the direction they might pray or the god they pray to or you know mm-hmm. their their other identity factors um, it's obviously targeting those individuals but it's also targeting people who are are, are like them who share similar social characteristics yeah. similar community characteristics and so hate crimes you know that's why it's really important again from that you know do something perspective you know obviously and unfortunately it does impact the individuals you know in, you know who are part of that crime you know in a very very direct way but then also pe- other people from the Somali community other people from the Muslim community uh, other mm-hmm. people from other uh, you know various religious uh, communities uh, who might say you know that that could have been me that could have been my mom that could have yeah. been my dad right and so I think that there's, there's power in terms of how these hate crimes uh, do send strong messages and again that's why it's really important when you do have leaders speak out and, and say this will not be tolerated I think to that degree it does provide a layer of comfort to know that you know it's being taken seriously it won't be tolerated but to be quite honest you know in this case uh, that's not enough right and I think that's where collectively we have to just step up and you know again kudos to the people that were able to intervene uh, to provide that safety net for the individual Uh, because you're right given circumstances it's easy for people to just walk away or look the other way or pretend it's not happening Uh, and there's various reasons why that happens and so I think that's why it's important to you know report it and do something whether it's at the moment or after the fact at least you can walk away and say I did something. Irfan, I need to take a, a quick break here. Can you just hold the line? You were involved with a with a really interesting um, panel today that I'd just like to touch on uh, after the break. Can you hold on for a couple more minutes? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Okay, Irfan Chowdhury joining me this afternoon again, director of the McEwen University Office of Human Rights. He's a hate crime researcher. This attack um, at the, at, um, in the parking lot of this the shopping centre on the south side, just absolutely disgusting. It's um, It makes my blood boil. And I think Irfan, you know, um, summed it up quite nicely when he called the suspect a coward. I would say he's, he's, he's pathetic, he's a coward, and it's absolutely disgusting. And um, we know that the numbers are rising. We're seeing more. We're hearing more vocalizations as well, not, not, just, not just, you know, physical attacks too. Just breaks my heart. It really does. We're talking about that uh, that attack in the parking lot at uh, the shopping centre in, in South Edmonton on Tuesday afternoon. Police are calling it a, a hate crime. Irfan Chowdhury uh, is a hate crimes researcher and joins me this afternoon. Just before we get to that panel that you were on uh, today, a couple of things have come in on my text line I just wanted to address. Um, someone, had said to, someone has said, oh, you know, it, it was so extreme that it must have been a, a mental break. You know, someone must have just, you know, snapped. And someone else said to me, hate crimes are terrible, but they're not going away. What do you say to those? Um, my head was just shaking as you were kind of saying that. Because oftentimes, and the reason I say that, you know, in the work that I do and the research that I do, oftentimes you do see kind of a mental health consideration being used. And I'm not discounting it, but sometimes okay. that's utilized as a, as a, as a quote-unquote excuse for why mm-hmm. someone does something that's hate-motivated. But I also think that does discount you know hate and bias motivation that is just based on someone's dislike for a certain identity or a certain group and so I think that's where when you have 
you know, police come in and, you know, consider hate-related charges, of course, it still has to kind of go through the cycle of, of the system. Uh, but when they're convinced enough that this was motivated by hate or bias, regardless of if someone snapped or not, you know, I think that's what the, the comment might have been uh, questioning. It's really yeah. important to acknowledge, you know, that there is hatred and bias and discrimination out there. And we can't just, you know, chalk it up to someone having a bad day because this is where we start to look at it from a systemic perspective, right? All of us have bad days but many of us aren't going there and targeting people because yeah. of their identities. Yeah, and we just can't give up uh, the fight against it just because it's hard, right? I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, we, you know, a lot of people have been fighting for a lot of things for a long, long time. All right, before I let you go, and I only have a couple of minutes yet, uh, yeah, uh, left. You had a, a there. There was the McEwen University hot stove panel today, looking at personal experiences of racial discrimination in in hockey. Tell me about that um, in in two minutes. I'm sorry, I'm yeah. not leaving you much time. <laughs> but you know, what did you hear today? What was what was this what was this about and why was it important to have this discussion yeah i'll do my best it was powerful it was uh, a summit that was funded by the government of canada's anti-racism action program i was hosted by harnarai and singh and so in this in this hot stove specifically we had you know players uh, of racialized backgrounds that just kind of you know shared their experiences of on and off the ice uh, forms of racial discrimination that they experienced themselves uh, or even uh, the other panelists, you know, have, have witnessed it as, as a teammate, as an ally, and really not knowing what to do. Uh, and the reason why we hosted this virtual summit was to start to gather information on what the gaps are in terms of addressing, you know, racism within a hockey and sporting setting to be able to ensure that when those instances happen, A, we can address them and ensure they start to reduce, but B, people know where to go and who to turn to because I think the stories shared were so raw and inspirational and even the chat screen that people were utilizing in the virtual session really was prompting people wanting to have action and change and so similar to what we've been talking about you know more broadly with the hate crime you know these are aspects where i think collectively as a community we need to be addressing it in many ways and right now people are looking for resources and support and so that was one of the reasons why we hosted it you know what? Uh, I always enjoy our conversations. You always leave us with so much to, to think about, and I always appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, thank you again, and have a good rest of the day to everyone listening. Bye-bye. Yeah. You betcha. Irfan Chowdhury joining us this afternoon. Uh, as I mentioned, he is at uh, McEwen University's Office of Human Rights and a hate crime researcher. You know, it's really interesting. You know, Trevor texting in on the text line, he says, oh, there has to be more to this story. It was just road rage. Pfft, hate crime. Really? Two young ladies sitting in a car, minding their own business, and somebody comes up and just starts pounding on the window, so much so that it breaks the glass, chases the woman out of the car, throws her to the ground, knocks her unconscious. Give me a break. Give me a break.